0: phone check one two what is this It's the five foot seven assassin in the podcast business and we're back with another episode of QLC TV my name is Rohan and I'm the host of this lovely show where I aim to give you authentic insight into the world of music which will be a primary focus as it's my absolute utmost passion in the world I just love music I'll also be talking about politics as the other key focus as well as some culture sports sprinkled in as well as topics about growing into adulthood and personal development as all of this is delivered from the perspective of a 25 year old Indian man living in Canada trying to make sense of not only myself but of the world so all in all I thank you so much for listening and taking part in this creative journey that I'm embarking on with QLC TV and I just hope that this platform will not only give myself but give those listening something nice to look forward to when they wake up in the morning. Because if I achieved that, then I've succeeded. Hey everybody, it is QLC TV episode 13. We have a great set of topics to talk about today. First, I'll be covering this absolute train wreck clusterfuck of a U.S. election debate with Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And then I'm going to cover this really interesting, captivating project From Elzai, title seven times down, eight times up. So getting into this debate that took place on Tuesday, September 29th, this was one of the most infuriating pieces of television that I think many people have ever watched in their entire goddamn lives. This was a real chore. And honestly, it was the first time that I ever watched a live U.S. debate in full, from start to finish, in my entire life. I've only done this with Canadian debates. So, I only did that because I knew I wanted to talk about it on this on this show. So, honestly, not only you're welcome, you actually owe me an apology. Because, oh my god, this was so hard to watch. But before we get into why that is, the key thing to think about and to know about these debates in the U.S. in in particular, but in most countries, to be honest, is that these debates are rarely won and lost based on the policy substance. It's never honestly based on this candidate presented an idea, a set of ideas that are really strong, good for the country, that uh, are better than the opponent. No, that's rarely what this is about. It's mostly about... Messaging in terms of how you frame topics, uh, nice sound bites that you can deliver uh, through good punchy remarks, maybe there are punchy attacks on your opponent, and just the overall feeling that you give to the voting public. Because as much as we want to act like we live in a, a world, live in countries that are based on people making reasonable, logical analysis of their political candidates and then coming to a voting result. That's honestly rarely how it works. I wouldn't say rarely, that's a little too strong, but because people do operate on general ideologies that are based on something, but past just identifying as a left-wing person, as a conservative, as a moderate, there's really not much more detail that people go into before they automatically have made their decisions based on um, style and general feeling and personality traits from their potential leaders. So I'm actually very glad that I watched the full debate from start to finish for the purposes of analyzing it and giving my thoughts because Without me watching every single second and not just watching like the highlights or the best moments uh, compilations that you can obviously find on this debate, I wouldn't have picked up on just how pronounced Trump's irritated, irritable kind of personality was coming off and just how much he was whining and complaining 24-7. Because Trump was clearly trying to steamroll Biden and talk over him constantly when he was trying to make a point. And this strategy of talking over Biden, I think at first, early on in the debate, maybe the the first 10 minutes or so, Biden wasn't ready for that. Biden was, I mean, he was always stumbling over his words because he's senile. He's like 195 years old. Um, but Biden was definitely coming off like and losing his train of thought many times, and wasn't really picking it up. Didn't have sharp remarks to say in response to to Trump. But over time, Biden adjusted, and Trump took this asshole nature that he always had and just took it way too far. Like I'm speaking throughout this whole thing, I'm trying to speak from as much as I can an objective undecided voter kind of point of view and just knowing how generally people think about politics the way they're so i feel like people are very fixated on decorum the idea of professionalism of being presidential uh it even with trump even with people accepting this very different style of leadership where he he's very brash he's very aggressive and calls people out like so much more directly than any other uh, weasley politician did in the past. I think he didn't come off as telling it like it is. I think he came off very defensive. And I think that's a really important distinction to be made because instead of really kind of being an asshole in a way that he was before in the 2016 run, where he was... He was kind of mocking people in a funny way. He was genuinely charming at times. He just came off very angry and unnecessarily attacking. Like he would talk over the moderator constantly. Chris Wallace, the moderator from Fox News, was just having no success calming this guy down. And Trump would not let Biden answer any question. He would just start talking and talking and talking over him like a child. And I just have to imagine even, even some of the supporters... I know his crazy supporters, they're fine with this. But the supporters that just voted for him but aren't like in love with him like a cult... Uh, it, it must have rubbed them the wrong way. Because he was just coming off so childish, so immature. And I think it, it, it definitely came off more pronounced and kind of annoying to listen to. Because... There was no crowd, there was no kind of cheering that he often plays off of that kind of maybe makes some of his brashness come off more funny and more supported uh, due to just the idea of a, ch- a crowd cheering someone when you hear them speak. Like he just came off like a angry get-off-my-lawn kind of 90-year-old grandfather or something like that. And also, I think it came off differently because he's the sitting president. It's, it does before in 2016 it was okay this guy's an outsider he's telling it like it is uh sticking it to the system but he is the system now even if he wants to act like he isn't he is and it kind of takes off the veneer of this outsider telling it like it is when you're the sitting president so this buffoonery that you're showing it comes off kind of gross and kind of not kind of super fucking annoying. And in terms of the content of Trump's attacks towards Biden, it was it was it was mainly uh from the standpoint of a saying that Biden is either a complete radical leftist and he kept trying to use those terminologies when attacking Biden, saying, Oh, you support Bernie Sanders' uh Medicare for All plan or you are in support of the Green New Deal, which for people who don't know what that is, that's basically a set of policies that are very much focused on adopting renewable energy resources, moving off of fossil fuels uh, to, to save the environment, to hinder the progression of climate change, and all of that. It's a very left-wing policy introduced by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and championed by Bernie Sanders and all that so he kept trying to attack him and saying oh you support this Biden would and I can get I'll get to his side of this later but Biden would say no I actually don't support this I'm in support of something in the middle and then Trump would always end that remark and that kind of conversation by saying okay there you go you lost the left oh okay there you go Biden just lost the radical left it was a strategy that I think in It makes sense on paper, I think, because what Trump is trying to do with this is that he knows that Biden doesn't actually support this. There's nothing to say. Biden's pretty much a Republican, to be honest. He he knows that he doesn't support this, but he wants to get Biden to disavow these obviously popular left-wing policies because he wants Biden to to suppress the vote and not garner support from these actual true left-wing supporters that obviously make up a portion of the Democratic Party's support. He wants them to not show up to vote because he knows they're not going to... He doesn't need to try to appeal to those voters. Trump knows he's never going to get people that are uh, super in favor of very left-wing policies. But he does know that he may get them to just not vote at all, which in turn will benefit Trump and make it more likely that he wins the election. But overall, I do think this is the wrong approach, because again, on paper, this makes sense. But when you get into the the nuances of why Trump won the election in 2016, if your analysis ends at he's a racist, America's racist, they voted for a racist, then you're just wrong and you're being stupid. Like, there's no other way to talk about this. He didn't just win because he was appealing to racist tendencies. He also won because he was acting, obviously lying, and it was clear to people like that were paying attention, that weren't in love with him, that he was lying. But anyways... He acted and lied as if he was a Republican, but also someone who supported very populist, uh, particularly when it comes to economic uh, ideas like being against trade deals, being pro kind of protectionism of your economy when it comes to encouraging and making it so companies produce and employ workers in the United States and support the economies locally versus outsourcing uh, through globalization. Uh, and outsourcing their their production of things in uh, places like China or India, and he synthesized the this approach constantly in all the ways he talked out of both sides of his ass. Like he would a good example is like he would say in elect in election debates and rallies in 2016 that he was never gonna cut your Social Security, but then at the same time was gonna be super in favor of cutting taxes, which is a very right-wing kind of policy and idea. So he was very in favor of the social security net, which is often something the left-wing protects, but then said a contradictory statement that he's in favor of lowering your taxes, which would theoretically underfund those programs. And in general, he's in favor of reducing government spending and all of that, which is again contradicting that idea. But continuously keep this in your mind. People don't care that much about politics to get into the nitty-gritty. Simba, shut up. That's my cat. Um, People don't care. They just want to hear what they want to hear. People often do this, especially when it comes to politics, which is very much something that people feel is in who they vote for, dictates what kind of person they are. So their identity is often tied to what party they support, and they for the people who are Republicans, would read that and say, oh, he wants to cut taxes. I like cutting taxes. I'm for smaller government. I'm going to vote for him. But then there's other people that were maybe in the middle in terms of they weren't super in favor of Democrats. Maybe they leaned and voted for Obama in the past, but they aren't some some progressive by any nature. But they, they hated Hillary Clinton for a variety of different reasons and thought, okay, you know what? This guy also wants to support the social uh, safety net. Like, that's something I can support. I'm I'm in favor of keeping that afloat. And they just pick what they want to hear. He was able to kind of say he supports two different contradictory policies at the same time. And that brings me to this debate because Trump didn't try to appeal as a populist this time around. He tried to solidify his very extreme support. Because he knows those people are definitely going to vote and he wants to make sure, he wants to take the approach that I'm going to just make it so 100% of my strong supporters and strong Republican supporters vote for me versus trying to appeal to get a broader uh, net of people voting for me. And I don't think that's the right approach because he was so successful at getting people that obviously didn't get left wing support last year, but last election, but he got... He got people that were just didn't really care that much and just saw him as being an outsider. Maybe he could be not a stupid, corrupt politician. And they voted for him because he actually supported some things like ending the wars, the trade agreements, as I mentioned before, that actually appealed to regular people because the vast majority of people support all of these policies. I just don't think his 30 to 35%... Uh, of the country's strong supporters are enough for him to win the election. I think he needs to broaden his reach a bit if he actually wants to win. But a a reason why I think he's moving away from this approach that he did in 2016 is probably just because, hey, he's actually been in office. And as much as Trump can lie through his teeth, I think even for him it's a little hard for him to say, I'm going to do things like protect the social safety net, etc., when he's shown that he definitely isn't going to do that because he literally didn't do it while he was in office. So that might be a reason, but either way, I don't think his current strategy is going to be a winning strategy. So that brings me to this debate in terms of Biden's performance as well because Biden kind of adopted a similar approach to Trump's in 2016. In particular, when Trump was trying to attack Biden for not supporting law and order, which is, again, he is just digging into these super right-wing kind of framings, where you're against, you're for rioting and, and destruction of people's property, and you are for destroying the cities and the suburbs. Biden very smartly distanced himself from a framing of a question that is not popular, which is, being anti-law and order that's not popular he distanced himself from saying he wants to defund the police uh which is something that is not as popular as i would hope it is the way that mess that idea has been framed in the media is not positive is not necessarily even correct uh where people act as if that means there's no law enforcement of any sort um And they therefore, it's not very popular. So he dissed himself from an unpopular framing. But then he actually just goes ahead and says, no, I'm not for defunding the police. But I am in favor of bringing psychologists to 911 calls to accompany cops so that they can have a much more likely chance of de-escalating situations that are are not violent at all. This is a great idea. But what's more important to note is that that's actually an idea that's very much part of the policy idea package of the defund the police ideology and stance so again he's kind of contradicting himself but in a way that again lots of people will just say okay he's not for defunding the police so i support him because i'm in favor of law and order or i'm just in favor of something that is obviously very popular, which is at least keeping the police force-funded and having some form of law enforcement. But then also he's appealing to people that actually support some forms of of police reform, which is bringing the psychologists and stuff to, to 911 calls. It's not necessarily as blatantly contradictory as some of the other examples that I brought up and what Trump has done in the past, but it is somewhat of a sleight of hand where he's saying two things at once uh especially because i i'm almost gonna guarantee he's not gonna do that because this was is very i've never heard him say this honestly no no democrats have actually said this that are in his space of that super corporatist um neoliberal kind of uh point of view and i thought it was really clever to be honest and if he does it i mean that's actually something really impactful in my opinion so i hope he does it but Moving on to other parts of this debate, as I mentioned before, Biden really started to get into a groove. And again, his performance wasn't good, but in comparison to Trump, which is all that really matters when it comes to debate when you're looking at two people opposing people, he started to have some actually some good rebuttals. He he when when Trump very famously, now or infamously, failed to denounce or condemn white supremacists and instead pointed to antifa as being the real problem in left-wing violence his rebuttal of saying that the his own trump's own fbi director says antifa isn't even an organization it's just an idea so and that the real threat is white supremacy that was actually accurate and it was very good because trump had nothing to say after that and just said oh my fbi director's wrong like a classic thing he always does And in terms of Trump's failure to condemn the white supremacists, in particular, the exchange went where Trump was trying to not say anything and why he's trying not to say anything is really boils down to two different reasons. Either you think he's a racist, which is very, I think he is. But most importantly, I know he knows that his vehement support comes from a lot of white supremacists and racists. So he didn't want to go out of his way to say, I'm against white supremacy, but when Chris Wallace pressed him and Trump was like, oh, tell me someone to denounce, I'll do it right now. And he gave him the Proud Boys, which is a disgusting neo-Nazi far right type of group that has had very documented forms of brutal violence against protesters on the, from the left. He said, stand back and stand by to Proud Boys. That's what he said. Chris Wallace said, will you tell these Proud Boys to stand down? And he said, stand back and stand by. That quote has gone, done the rounds across all of the uh, media platforms. And for good reason. He's telling a far-right neo-Nazi group to stand by and, and stand back. It almost sounds like a military order to be ready. And I mean, I... I understand, but I may be in the minority here to say that I think he's just super old and misspoke. I'll be quite honest. Because it's not the first time he just says things in a very weird way and like doesn't say things properly. And I just think he would have said it in a different way. That That's almost too coded for Trump Trump has never been that coded he's not like a normal politician he actually is a person that if he wants to say something racist he'll say it remember this when Mexico sends its people they're not sending their best they're not sending you they're sent they're not sending you they're sending people that have lots of problems and they're bringing those problems with us they're bringing drugs they're bringing crime they're bringing rapists and some I assume are good people that isn't stand back and stand by stand back and stand by sounds like some cunning terrorist speaking to his his fellow terrorist. like it sounds too coded it sounds too brainy and intelligent almost or clever of of a dog whistle for for trump to say he would have said something Different. I, I just I just don't buy it. And especially because Chris Wallace says, will you tell them to stand down? I feel like Trump's stupid old 150-year-old brain just had the word stand in it, and he just replied with that. Because Trump has said, believe it or not, has condemned white supremacy in different ways. Not incredibly direct, but why did he have to pick it this time to be so coded? He easily could have said something like, Pro boys, they're they're not a problem. But what really matters is Antifa and the left wing violence, which is what he basically said. So yeah, I actually don't think that was the big moment that people want it to be. But I also think Trump is a racist, so in terms of people like me who already know this, it this doesn't move the needle. I already knew this. I know he supports that shit. So basically my, my final thoughts are that Biden actually didn't come off very wooden, even though he was mocking Trump, calling him a clown at times. I think what differentiated him and why I actually think he did decently well compared to Trump in relation to how horrible Clinton did, Hillary Clinton did in the 2016 election, is because Hillary just came off so goddamn condescending and elitist. And elitist being the the key here because Biden, even when he's embanked, and trying to insult Trump, it comes off so obvious and expected and reasonable. He's like, okay, you're going to keep talking over me. All right. And when Chris Wallace interrupts Trump to say, hey, stop interrupting Joe, let him speak. And then Trump's like, okay. And then Joe's like, good luck. Like, it's just, he comes off folksy. That's what Biden has always been good at. He comes off personable because he comes off like middle America, regular person in the way he speaks. And honestly, I think because he's so old and is having such a hard time putting a sentence together, I don't think he comes off very elitist and condescending just because he can barely even put words together to even try. And as I mentioned for Trump, I think he just came off too aggressive, way too angry, did not come off charismatic. He just came off like a baby, I think to even most voters, even Republicans. Trump was so annoying that he made me even root for Biden. Like, look, I I think Biden, Kamala Harris, his VP, absolutely suck. All these typical corporate liberal people, I disliked them so much. But Trump was so goddamn annoying. Like, I can't stress this. He was so goddamn annoying. So rude. Came off like such a baby. Was just whining and complaining about every question so much. It made me root for someone that I don't even like in any way, shape, or form. So I'm telling you, like, I think that just his demeanor being so much of a crybaby, I think really did make Trump, like, come off very poorly, even to his own party. And for Biden, I think it's pretty clear that he didn't even try to appeal too much to left-wing policies other than a couple clever ways of speaking and contradictions here and there. And I do think that matters, but I think Biden's also taking... A similar approach that he's just trying to say trump is bad and you need to vote for me and i'm gonna just keep keep the party afloat i'm gonna keep this country afloat and i don't think overall it's it's that bad of a strategy given that we're in this pandemic i think without the pandemic this changes things where i would expect him to try to be more progressive in his messaging but I think with the pandemic, people just want any kind of competency, and Biden was very strong at attacking Trump of how on, on how bad he handled this pandemic for good reason, and was mostly very accurate. So I think a- appealing as the adult in the room, as calming things down, taking care of people, making the point that you have to take care of people's safety before you talk about saving the economy, which I think was a good way Biden framed questions when uh, about the coronavirus pandemic when he attacked Trump. I thought that was very good. And I think if this was, like I said, 2016, where there was no pandemic and people were did have a very big appetite for radical change where Clinton just dropped the ball completely and the Democrats dropped the ball, I think just giving some plain old white man as a, as a politician with nothing new to, to offer is actually going to be more effective than it would be had there not been a pandemic. So yeah, I think Biden won this debate and Trump really needed a W because he's not doing well in the polls and he didn't get that at all. But this is just one debate and the questions I actually thought surprisingly from a Fox News anchor were kind of slanted in Biden's favor. So we'll see how this all pans out in the next debate which may have questions that are more slanted in trump's favor but that's if trump's even alive because holy crap this guy just got covid um i'm not going to speculate too much on this episode it's just very new news i'm recording this on october 3rd but all the signs say this is actually very serious and you can already see the spin happening from the white house so stay tuned on that and finally, this clusterfuck of a debate just shows the America, American dream, the American experiment, it's, it's looking to be a very failing, decaying empire, and it's really sad to see, to be honest. This is the end result of America making every single piece of their country an entertainment product. This is what we get. We get a reality show host and a 150-year-old folksy white man as your two jackass candidates who could be the president, who have nothing good to offer to the country. Okay, so I'm going to move on now to this Elzai album, something that is definitely not annoying to listen to and will definitely lift up your spirits, unlike that goddamn debate. So Elzai is a veteran rapper from Detroit, Michigan in the United States. He's known for... Being a part of the Slum Village Rap Group, which is a famed uh, rap group from Detroit that had Jay Dilla in it, and he was part of that group once Dilla left, and he's simply known for being an absolutely premier lyricist. He has some great projects as a solo rapper as well under his belt with the Preface album with Black Milk, another great Detroit producer, and the surprisingly amazing Elmatic with Will Sessions, another Detroit producer band. Elmatic, as you can tell by the name, it's actually a remake of Nas's classic Illmatic album, and that just sounds on face value and did to me in twenty eleven when I heard it as a as a gross mistake. You can't remake an album like that. It's such a classic, it's untouchable. But Elzai did it justice, man, and with Will Sessions' updated production where they took all the beats, remade them in a live studio band kind of way, injected new life into the instrumentals. Elzai brought stories from his Detroit past, contrasting it with Nas' uh, New York pa- past. It was just really interesting and an amazing album. I highly recommend that. So, you know, if I had to think of the top rappers... I've ever heard in terms of just a pure rapping ability standpoint meaning not just wordplay ability but also when it comes to the, the delivery uh, when it comes to the flow the ability to even like inject different grooves rhythms and cadences into your bars Elzai is actually in my top five all-time he's truly one of the most gifted rappers to ever live whose music is is further made even more captivating because of his ability to express his emotions and in particular his depression and his sadness uh, that is so unique because it's so incredibly descriptive and it's embedded into his fantastic lyrical ability that really sets him apart from other rappers who discuss these emotional topics. And and this was put on full display with Elzai's uh, 2016 record Lead Poison. And I see this album, which I'll be discussing right now, uh, seven times down, eight times up. I see this new album as sort of an indirect sequel to 2016's Lead Poison, where this time around, L is in a much better place mentally and is also rapping over beats that are much more lively. So seven times down, eight times up is... Another album that Elzai has done with one sole producer. So this is a collaboration with an up-and-coming producer, uh, J.R. Swifts. Uh, J.R. has created a strong buzz around his work, having uh, collabed with Conway the Machine, who I just reviewed his latest album in episode 12, Westside Gun, Flea Lord, So a lot of big names in the underground rap scene. And this is JR's full, first full-length project with full production credits. And L has already created some great projects with good to great production using that one producer formula. So I had really high hopes when I bought this off Bandcamp and, and spun this. So first thing I heard when I put this on was not Elzy, but actually this hilarious comedian uh, named Foolish who ends up doing multiple skits throughout this project. He is absolutely hilarious and makes me love these skits throughout the project. And that's saying something because we all know, uh, all us people who listen to rap music, a lot of times these skits are so unnecessary and just wreck the flow completely. But these are really funny. And he starts off the, the album just putting me in a good mood. And that's kind of a theme that this album kind of has for me where it's uplifting and how it's uplifting though I think is really important and and makes this album really strong uh to me because it's not uplifting by uh not talking about any struggles or moments of weakness or any kind of depressing topics it Elzai talks about this stuff but it always has an uplifting tone to it Um, more of a reflection, less of a I'm living this right now kind of vibe. So the first track, Smoke and Mirrors, the first true track, uh, shows off what would be the norm for this album, which is bass lines that are beefy as hell, that have a nice texture and enough warmth and detail that leaves a real impression on the listener, super head nodding type of beats, Really strong boom bap feel to it. And overall. JR's production throughout this project. Serves as that consistent foundation. uh, To give Elzai. The proper grooves for him. To just spit his magic. Flow through these beats. Like butter. It's a really good match. Pretty much throughout the whole project. And this Smoke and Mirrors track. Also shows what would be the norm. In terms of the rapping. uh, Where L. displays such an array of flows here and actually some different flows that I've not usually heard from him. He even uses these vocal effects at times that I think come off beautifully. It also shows off that the hooks on this album are classic El-Zai. They're not. They're not generic. They're not simplistic. They're still very wordy, but they flow into the verses very, very well. And also the substantial lyricism, which is the biggest takeaway for me, Uh, where Elzai's rapping about these challenges he's dealt with, uh, where he paints a very vivid picture of what his thought processes were during these times, but also coming from the perspective of someone who's not living it now. And as someone who's followed his career, and as someone who's particularly listened to the 2016 record Lead Poison, Elzai was dealing with a lot of addiction issues. He was dealing with a very bad label relationship where he was very low on money and not making the kind of uh, income that he deserved given how great his work was. And he paints this all in such a vivid picture, like Elzai is truly one of the greatest storytellers because he, the way he can inject so much detail and precision in his rhymes, he makes you feel like you're right there. In his mind or wherever he is physically in these songs. I feel like L's a rapper that can make you introspectively head nod. Like that's, that's the way I'd put it. Because he makes you think, but he also makes you bob your head. Because this music is so catchy. His flows are so good. And there's so much wordplay that makes you just give that stank face. You're like just, damn. And he continues to balance this. Sobering yet not overly depressive and almost uplifting lyricism on the light one right one track, which has a beautiful beat, beautiful beat, and he raps about his triumph over recent struggles and gives some some words of advice and reflections throughout uh, that he learned through this time. Uh, G O D is a song that's later on in the track list that's absolutely sublime. Uh, I love the singing, which is something I don't often hear El do either, where he kind of harmonizes with the feature artist Monica Blair. It's really nice, really peaceful, and then it slides again really nicely into that last verse of this track. And this song has a great mix of, you know, meaningful lyrics about the what people find their purpose in, what people believe in, and which could also often be kind of materialistic things that can lead people down wrong paths where this album sort of takes a bit of a downturn is in the middle section where there are these two tracks side by side um called these grindhouse presents songs where one is completely handled by a feature artist fez rock and then one track thugged out which is uh, performed by elzai It highlights a problem that Elzai sometimes has in his music where I think he takes the concepts too far, I guess you could say, where these tracks move away from the reflective, introspective um, approach that he took with the lyrics to concepts that still have meaning, but they're concept tracks that aren't very clear as to what they mean. And musically, I find... The, the track with Fez Rock is is, is is definitely good, but the track thugged out, I think the beat is definitely the worst one on the entire project. And Elza kind of speaks like paints this kind of metaphor, I guess, of these thugged out zombies that are kind of like eating their own. I, I don't really understand it too much to be honest. I've listened to it many times, and it just ruins the momentum because Before this, the project was absolutely firing on all cylinders. And although I like the production... I don't like it, actually. I I really do love it at times. I can't help but feel like I miss some of the musical elegance of that Elmatic album that I mentioned earlier. Because that was live instrumentation. It was a full band. There was often a lot of strings and horn sections throughout. And I think that elevated the feeling that I got from that project, which I think this album misses because Elzai is not a rapper that often deviates from his butter smooth, even keel delivery. And tone wise, his music is often very middle ground. It's never incredibly depressive or incredibly uh, high energy. It mostly stays in the middle. So I feel like those grand musical embellishments of that Elmatic project made it more dynamic for me, and I think that, that, that level of dynamics on this project is, is lacking. I also feel like I can't help but miss more of the direct lyricism about his depression and his struggles, which is something that I think El does so skillfully. On this album, obviously he's being very introspective, I keep mentioning that, but he's rapping about these topics either through a extended metaphor, or he's rapping about these topics from the other side of the struggle, where he's more just reflecting on it, telling you what he learned, and showing where he is now, which is in a much clearer, peaceful headspace. And obviously, I am, just as a human being, I'm very happy to see that. Elzai just strikes me as an incredibly great guy. And what he displayed on Lead Poison was him in the middle of that storm. And it really struck me. It, he really struck me as a person who felt really lost, who felt like giving up, who felt like a, a failure, who felt like someone who thought their life just wasn't going to turn around. And obviously even on that project there was moments of, of light and seeing the, the 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 end of the tunnel. But I think where I am mentally at this moment is playing a significant factor in biasing how I look at this, but because you know, I'm in a spot right now where I'm I'm feeling kind of discontent with where I am in life and starting to lose, you know, some relationships, some friendships that I had. Uh, before in my life that were supporting me. You know, just feeling like life is passing me by. Feeling scared of the future. Feeling scared in general. Health-wise, financially, all that you can think of. So I think how downtrodden lead poison was just feels more in sync with how I'm feeling right now. Maybe I won't have the same feeling uh, a year from now when hopefully I'm in a, a bit more of a better place. But it's music, and this is just my thoughts on a project, so it's obviously biased. And right now, although the subject matter certainly connects, it simply doesn't hold the same amount of emotional weight that Lead Poison did. But that being said, I think the production is good to great throughout. I think I really like the, the chemistry overall. I think all these beats fit Elzai really well. And I think Elzai delivers just another greatly written album. And I give this a 8.3 on 10. If people really love lyricism, really miss lyricism and rap, really want to hear some fat beats, if I had to characterize these beats, are just so fat, they're so thick. They got such strong drumming to it, great grooves. It's a great project, 47 minutes, very cohesive, I highly recommend this to any, any fan of rap. And I can't tell you enough to support this man. Elzai, he's got so much to offer to the rap game. And he just, again, comes off like a really good guy that I really want to support. So thank you all for listening. This concludes what I wanted to talk about today in episode 13 of QLC TV. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I really appreciate the support. I love doing this, and I can't wait to continue doing more of these episodes of QLC TV moving forward. If you want to follow me, support the podcast, please subscribe on all the podcast channels that you use, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so on. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Roview. so that's R-O-H-V-I-E-W, and shoot me a comment, send me a DM, and feel free to suggest whatever topic you think I should cover whether it be some political discussion music, etc or if you just wanted to send me some feedback about something that you think I should improve on or consider changing as it relates to the show I'm definitely all ears I wanted to start this podcast to to help myself grow, help myself uh, express myself more efficiently, more concisely more effectively, so I'm always open to anything that I should improve on, whether it be about how i deliver the show or just to criticize some horrible take that i had i'm all ears and i'd like to extend an open invitation to anybody who's listening right now who would like to join me in a discussion on any topic of your liking just shoot me a dm post a comment and i would love to do that because i want to connect with you guys who are listening as much as i can and foster a community So thank you once again for listening. Peace.